I'd say to the tech company, why would you acquire that construction company instead of just wiping them out? The Procores and Autodesk of this world could easily set up a, a construction management division and probably eat everyone else for breakfast because yeah. they're going to be so much more efficient because they have a consolidated sort of tech strategy. And yeah. that'd be fascinating to see happen. And maybe wow. construction people need to maybe get off their high horse a bit and realise that they should maybe just employ a whole bunch of people from Boeing or something to design and build their next whatever they're going to build. Because the funny thing is there's a, a load of money in construction, but because everything's so inefficient, it just gets lost all over the place. And then wow. you think about if you're getting an Amazon Prime delivery or Uber shows up, imagine if it was like, oh, Uber might be there on time. The likelihood of it being on time is 20%. Or Amazon might chop this afternoon, but then it might chop tonight. Or it showed up three hours ago and you weren't at home. That's exactly what the construction industry operates like still. And it's utterly ridiculous. So it's 10 years behind Uber, which started 10 years ago, and yet the construction industry still can't fix these things. James, hey, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. This is a follow-up conversation to the one that we had back in 2020. I know that you were one of the first podcast guests that we had, so super excited to now invite you back, do a bit of a refresh, maybe a reflection on some of our comments yep. from 2020. Yeah, how are you doing? Good. It's, it's a crazy year, and I think it's been a crazy couple of years since we first spoke. Obviously, it's great that we're still alive as a business and growing. So I think that's probably the, the, the main thing always. But certainly, you know, I think back in 2020, it was like, oh my God, COVID's happened and it's going to just be a disaster. So for those who didn't have the opportunity to listen to our conversation from a few years ago, and may not have come across the, the work that you and your fantastic team do at Voyage Control, would you mind just introducing yourselves and then, and then we can get started? Sure. Yeah. So James uh, Swanston, uh, I'm the CEO, founder of Voyage Control. We're very focused on supply chain uh, and logistics in the built environment. Uh, starting the events industry with convention centers uh, and construction is by far the largest sector we work in. We're concurrently on about 250, 260 construction projects globally in 15 countries. And that ranges from small fit out projects through to giga projects in the Middle East and so on. The core focus has very much been on the last mile logistics for our clients, but increasingly we're looking at the sort of holistic supply chain requirements they have both to meet operational and ESG needs. Thinking about now versus 2020, whether it's better or worse, it depends what kind of metrics you're basing that on. But yeah, we were definitely in an interesting situation at the minute. There are so many big macro factors affecting the, I guess, the infrastructure market at the minute. I guess a good place to start could be maybe sort of reflections on 2020 versus now. Uh, I know you mentioned you, you listened back to our conversation from four years ago. Any standout differences, any sort of changes of opinion that you've had since? Interestingly, something I said back then, which I think has absolutely played out correctly, is you know, our focus as a business has always been on revenue. Um, um, and yes, we, we have taken a bit of money in the last couple of years, but revenue is the most important thing at the moment. And particularly given where the fundraising environment is in the tech industry in general, and also in, in Contech, it cash is absolutely king or queen. It's absolutely the thing that people must focus on and getting to profitability. 
So I'm happy that we've kept that thesis going over over the sort of life of the business. And then secondly, I remain so thankful that we've really focused on the US market as the primary growth engine for the business, which it certainly has been and will probably continue to be for the foreseeable future. I think your comment around cash being king or queen and the, yep. the need for profitability is so important. And we're seeing a quite a challenging environment for companies that have really gone down that sort of quite strict venture capital fundraising path and then found themselves in a bit of a sticky situation, having taken yep. on funding and not quite be able to demonstrate that growth that is needed. And yep. Actually, the ones that are coming out of this situation are the ones who do have that uh, strong business model and that sort of drive for prof profitability. And I, I guess you could really scale that that principle up to all of the big players in the market within the construction sector. We're seeing so many companies heading towards bankruptcy. We've had quite a few announced over the last few weeks and months, Buckingham Group, being, being one of them, being probably one of the largest. We've seen Lang O'Rourke also in a difficult situation. What would you say are the, are the sort of the key factors in the market that you're seeing at the minute as someone who works across both really across a global footprint? Yes. Yeah, so, so a term I read about the other day, which I'd never heard before was Zerpers. And it talks about people who have come up in a background of a zero interest rate policy. And I think the cheap funding environment that has existed over the last decade is at the root of a lot of the problems that exist, whether it's cheap capital going into intervention and then into effectively, you know, I think about this like the subprime mortgage crisis. And if you've seen the big short, it's all a bit of a Ponzi scheme. There are companies yeah. that founders have great storytelling and can raise lots of money at ridiculous valuations, but there's no underlying real business model that sort of accompanies that. And I think we're seeing that market correction hit right now. And that's particularly in the tech space, but in the wider construction industry, it's an industry that is perpetually challenged by financial problems, whether it's with where the market, where the money's coming from to, to fund projects or the sort of delays that exist through paying suppliers. And if people are operating on really low gross margins and there's a hiccup with getting paid, then the, the problems are on the sort of at the smaller end of the supply chain are horrendous. And there's every week there's sort of statistics about construction insolvencies getting to all-time highs all over the place. And you know, back in Australia, a lot of very big construction companies have gone under, in part because they've said, oh, we'll do this project for a fixed rate. And then material costs have gone up 100%. And yeah, that's really difficult. During COVID, the, the, the cost of transport from a supply chain perspective went through the roof. And we're actually seeing that exact same thing happen now with spot rates for shipping um, because of what's happening in the Red Sea as well. So when you're operating on a really tight margin and then suddenly your cost of moving a container goes from, call it 500 pounds to 5,000 pounds, there goes your profit immediately on, on a big project. And I think a lot of big companies are really exposed to this and we just see that throughout the sort of whole industry. I've, I saw some commentary recently around uh, asking the question of, okay, we've gone through real extended period of low or zero interest rates. We've now come out of that and actually now consistent with the interest rates prior to that low period. 
what do we have to show for it? And actually we've got, I mean, if you look on the sort of the tech startup side, you've got the sort of the 10 minute grocery delivery apps who came up, lots of money made for a couple of select founders. You've got quite little progress within the energy transition within the climate tech space for reflecting on the period we've just gone through and what we've got to show for it. There, there was so much opportunity to make really good headway in climate tech and the energy transition. So yeah. much of that transition depends on quite asset intensive innovation. So yeah. it made it perfect for debt funded innovation, but we just have nothing to show for it. And now we've found yeah. ourselves back where we started and we're like, oh, actually, okay. It now comes to back down to the fundamentals. How much profit do you have? What's your revenue, your business model? And yep. back where we started. Absolutely. And the whole energy security issues that have been caused by Russia and Ukraine have just highlighted the vulnerability of the West to manage this properly as well. So it's it, absolutely, you're right. Like we've just gone backwards in, in many respects. Yeah. Which is and, a real shame. And I, I guess as someone who works within that supply chain logistics type environments, you probably in many ways at the coalface in terms of seeing the level of resilience within the marketplace because you really have that visibility of all of the different types of suppliers coming to a construction project. You see that sort of movement around the sector and the flow of goods. What's your opinion on the level of resilience in the market at the minute? It's no secret that the construction sector was already squeezed, but where are we at the minute? I think something that weirdly is both bad, but potentially helpful for the construction industry is because there's such a labor gap in the construction market. I think that is helping to prevent too much overheating in the sector. Yeah, in the US, there's what, four, 500,000 job openings in construction. So there's a lot of things that just physically can't get built because there aren't enough people. So I think that is helping to have a dampening effect on some of the challenges that would otherwise exist in the market. And we know that labor is a challenge globally in the construction industry, and it's not a tap you can just suddenly turn on. It's a multi-year approach to building the right skills and trades. From a, a product perspective, obviously, a lot of work has happened with moving production away from places like China. In the US, it's you know, to Mexico and, and everything like that. And, and that, again, that's a work in progress. But I think that sort of nearshoring principle is useful, particularly given the wider sort of geopolitical worries that everyone has about China and Taiwan and, and so on. So I think there's some good stuff going on, but at the same time, it's it's a really rough time in the market and a lot of customers are definitely suffering from access to material that they need in, in a short period of time. And certainly there are some items where there are rare earth minerals and stuff, which are just going to be diabolical in terms of how you get access to that. And then obviously water scarcity is something we could talk about for three podcasts almost if we wanted to. Yeah, I, I guess think hearing about all, all of those points and, and thinking about the squeeze and in by many metrics, that sort of market contraction within the UK construction sector because of the labour shortages, because of the the fluctuation in material costs because of the dependency on global supply chains and then large contractors like the Buckingham Group or Langer Rourke coming across quite significant issues. I can't help but feel that 
the UK construction market model is, is broken in a way. Yeah, the thing that fascinates me, and we've spoken about it previously, is the UK has been at the forefront of the BIM for however long, and yet productivity isn't improving. <laughs> like what is so fundamentally wrong in the UK market? Is it a multitude of factors? I don't know, but like we're not, admittedly, we're not seeing the big companies go bust here like you have in other countries. A lot of really big construction companies have gone bust in Australia over the last sort of couple of years. But, you know, there's no, it's, oh, BIM's arrived and 10 years later, everyone's super profitable and super efficient. Like that hasn't happened. Does that mean that BIM is a, a load of rubbish? I, I don't think so. But, or is it the fact that it's not actually moving through the whole sort of industry in the way that it should and affecting the change, which I think it potentially could? it was maybe the last podcast i made the point that actually there is so much that we could learn from from more digitally advanced sectors like manufacturing like pharmaceuticals if you compare the pharmaceuticals and the manufacturing design and sort of delivery environment to say wastewater treatments there are a lot of consistent factors across the both it's quite a specialist sort of processing environment. But then if you compare the digital maturities, you're at opposite ends of the spectrum. And why is that? Yeah, sure, there's more money in pharmaceuticals and so more money to really grow. But I don't really think there are many sort of justified reasons. And there's so much opportunity for, say, the water industry to learn from these sectors, really bring in that expertise, think about it, really almost start from scratch, clear slate, okay, this is the end objective of the say this wastewater treatment site. How can we start from scratch? How can we think a little bit differently? How can we learn from manufacturing and pharmaceuticals and really quickly, rapidly uh, design and deliver this new, this outcome? So I, I think the, the work that they're doing in the Middle East for like data centers, I think that's almost like the sort of the middle ground that's almost the sort of tipping point of actually tipping away from construction to more sort of high-tech manufacturing. So I hope it yeah. then filters through and into the wider, maybe less sexy areas of the industry. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Maybe the Middle East is a bit different because they can throw more money at the problem. But yeah, and maybe construction people need to maybe get off their high horse a bit and realise that they should maybe just employ a whole bunch of people from Boeing or something to... Yeah design and build their next whatever they're going to build. Because the funny thing is there's a, a load of money in construction, but because everything's so inefficient, it just gets lost all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was having a conversation with someone earlier today, actually, about the energy transition in climate tech. And it's often seen as this sort of charity case that, oh, we really hope the politicians give it some money and really commit the funding because it's really deserving and it has this sort of really prominent like moral element to it and quite rightly so but then actually if you strip away the morality there is so much money to be made in climate tech and the energy yep. transition and sort of similar fields and there is so much economic growth attached to that and it, it's just a no-brainer right it's i i don't understand why more and more capabilities aren't being funneled into it to unlock a huge amount of economic growth, but also actually get us into a bit of a better situation when it comes to the environment. 
And also, I think there's a security resilience element to this as well. If the UK was completely self-sufficient in sort of its power needs and the same with Western Europe, Russia would be in a very different position than it is right now because they were able to fund their invasion of Ukraine through sort of the Western energy needs. Yeah. One of the concepts that I'm absolutely fascinated about at the minute and have been for a while is this idea of a like a sort of tier one company of the future. And if you take a technology enabled or technology orientated company and they start thinking like a tier one and actually contracting directly with say an acetone employing their own supply chain and and natalie from changemaker 3d that we had in the previous podcast episode she spoke a little bit about this about actually going to market procuring her own supply chain and then being the organization that then brings it together to deliver a cohesive solution for the end clients but I think that actually there's a there's so much opportunity and there's a real underserved market for asset owners and the big challenges and priorities that they have. And there's so much opportunity for this sort of this tier one of the future. I don't want to put words in your mouth there, but where do you think the market <clears> is going in terms of what the sort of tier one or sort of major suppliers in the industry look like in the future? So the first thing I was I would say is that asset owners should be taking a lot more responsibility for their construction projects. I've seen too many times with customers or the developers where I know what the developer's strategy is around ESG or whatever, and then it's offloaded to the construction company and then the construction company don't care and so nothing ever gets done. You know, because risk gets just offloaded to someone further down the food chain, I think if that stopped and asset owners truly took responsibility for this, it'd make a lot of sense. And the the great thing that tech, the great asset that a tech company has is we have so much data on who's an efficient construction company and who's an efficient person in the supply chain. We've got 150,000 businesses on our platform around the world. And we could probably go in and say, actually in the Boston region, for example, here are the three best HVAC companies by virtue of X, Y, and Z. So we have that. And then you could also say to an owner, this company, only 10% of their deliveries show up on time. And this one, they're great. They've got 80% deliveries showing up on time, less than 10% damage and leakage. So you can actually start, yeah, as a tech company, you have a lot of data which an owner should use to determine who they're going to bring into projects. Yeah, I think owners is definitely, and developers, they're the people who ultimately are losing money because they're inefficient in the way that they procure their supply chain, which starts with who they use as a construction company. That That's the way I see it. Where do you think we'll see the tipping point for that data to be used for core decision-making? I think something that's really interesting at the moment is seeing the, the shift in ESG reporting in the United States, which isn't going to happen overnight, but certainly over the next sort of three to five years, it'll be a big sort of shock to the industry. And there's a number of things that are happening, but a point will come where whether it's the finance sitting behind a project or the asset owner who says, I need all this data. And then I've discovered that the construction company I'm using isn't doing anything. So we can't use them anymore. So I think that that's going to be the type of thing that's going to cause the tipping point. But certainly in the US, all of the ESG stuff that we're seeing now is fundamentally led by a client requirement and that's only going to grow. So, and then construction companies that 
aren't proactive with thinking about managing this are going to lose jobs. So um, there's this sort of proposed federal acquisition regulation in the United States whereby anyone doing more than $50 million worth of work with um, certain parts of the federal government has to report on their scope three emissions, which is going to be a crazy task. So it's not going to happen overnight, but that's going to just be, and that's across their entire company. It's not just on the sort of federal project. So that kind of thing is really going to change things around. It's finally payday for all of those ESG carbon accounting startups, eh? Probably in about five years. So. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's going to be, you can imagine the, the RFP process for yeah. when that goes to market. There's going to be absolutely hundreds of responses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the one of the sort of the big trends that I'm seeing at the minute is this sort of shift towards uh, productization. So, yeah. I mean, design for manufacturing and assembly has been around for quite a while now. Whether it's a it's like a day to day actual delivery strategy, not so sure. But in terms of a sort of like a buzzword phrase, it, it certainly has been around for a little while. But we are seeing a quite a big shift towards that thinking so that's like component driven thinking and thinking about how we can bring assets to site for assembly in just a little bit more of an efficient way there's still quite a far, quite a long way to go but the thinking is there really interested for your take on maybe what sort of impact this will have on the industry as someone whose day-to-day is often focused on that sort of that industry productivity points so I, I absolutely support the idea of the construction side being where things are finally assembled and fabricated, for want of a better term, because that should be able to introduce a whole range of efficiencies and critically reduce waste, because I think the waste at, at a construction site is something that could easily be reduced through more of a DFMA approach. But I guess the industry still has quite a way to go with that. Going back to 2020, when we first spoke, I would have thought that by now there would have been a lot more modular stuff happening than there is. Obviously, it's it's definitely a growing sort of market, but I would have thought it'd be greater than it is right now. And I think, again, DFMA, great idea, and it will continue to grow. And I think when you mentioned earlier about what are the tipping points with things, I think a point will also come where you have market leaders who are really good with manufacturing particular items who will just leave the rest of the competition for dead because they're the best M&E contractor. Everything's done as efficiently as possible, like an, uh, Boeing, and then it will just be impossible for more inefficient players to do stuff. When you come across concrete companies that are still doing everything on paper, literally scraps of paper and they're doing $500 million worth of work here. It's like, you guys are ridiculous. And a point will come where someone will just kill you because they're just more efficient. And and that's just the reality. Yeah. I sometimes think about what would Amazon do if they yeah. were forced to focus on the construction industry, Yeah, which I think yeah. raises quite an interesting question and maybe allows you to direct your thoughts to some of the pain points. For me, yeah. it's definitely how we do design. It's it's got yeah. to be it's got to be modular, or yeah. it's got to be component based. Yeah. Also about how we approach the the challenge of bringing things to life on site, how things get to site, 
how things are assembled on site, how we yeah. monitor that progress. Amazon are so big on their data and their metrics, their KPIs. It's And there's so many key performance indicators on site yeah. that we just we don't measure at all. So yeah. we're really missing a trick there. It, yeah. It's an interesting question. What do you think Amazon would do day one if they were forced to focus on the construction industry? When I think about like just logistics deliveries and then you think about if you're getting an Amazon Prime delivery or Uber shows up, imagine if it was like, oh, Uber might be there on time. The likelihood of it being on time is 20% or Amazon might show up this afternoon, but then it might show up tonight or it showed up three hours ago and you weren't at home. That's exactly what the construction industry operates like still. And it's utterly ridiculous. So it's 10 years behind Uber, which started 10 years ago, and yet the construction industry still can't fix these things. And I think there's, it's going to be really interesting when some of our clients say enough is enough to the supply chain and force them to change their practices. Something that's been really interesting recently over, say, the last year is chatting to some of our customers who are multi-billion dollar construction clients, and we're doing dozens of projects with them, and they still don't feel that they have the ability to really force their supply chain to to do what's in the contracts, which is fascinating. I think where Amazon has a lot of value is they just, they're used to operating as a single entity, which most of our customers aren't, and they've got such an amount of market sway that they can just force things through and force people to do what they say or else they go out of business. Yeah, Um, it's such an inefficient way of an industry existing. And I don't have visibility of how the Middle East are operating, but I imagine that some of the productivity that you see on like a Neom, for example, really outweighs or completely outstrips the UK when compared. A lot of lower labor sort of costs and uh, a, a different labor supply than say the UK market has, but yeah, you're absolutely right. So, and it just, it's, there's a big project that we're on and we were trying to put in place vehicle tracking and the entire supply chain refused to let our customer track their vehicles, even though it's in the contract with those suppliers. And it's just unbelievable. But I've now seen that many times all around the world where supply chains just do not like being held to account for what they do wrong. But conversely, sometimes the construction company does things wrong as well and they don't like to be held to account either. Yeah. What does the sort of supply chain of the future look like for you? So I think I think there's going to be a lot more consolidation of suppliers. I think one of the challenges that exists in, say, the UK at the moment, and part of the reason you do have so many insolvencies is there's a lot of very small players who don't have any financial resilience. And as they go out of the market because they fail, that means that bigger suppliers will be able to manage things more centrally. I think something that's been interesting to look at is a, a lot of funding that's gone into sort of last mile delivery companies in, in the US. In the last year, I think there's about $100 million that's gone into two or three companies that I've never heard of. I don't know if any of our customers have heard of them, but they've raised lots of money to provide an Uber-like service to construction projects. So it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. But I think if suppliers aren't smart with the way that they think about delivering and managing job sites, then they're going to be in trouble. Because ultimately, the cost of a failed delivery is absolutely huge for a subcontractor. I mean, if, if a delivery is happening and it's 
late or there's a problem, they can lose thousands of dollars just in wage that they're paying out for an inefficient activity. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think it'll be, I think in, yeah, and it's going to take a while. I would like to think that in the next five to 10 years, there'll be some companies that have really embraced technology properly and have been really disciplined with how they incorporate it throughout their organisations. And then that will be a bit of a shock, you know, to the rest of the industry because there's still too much sort of innovation washing and greenwashing in the industry where people yeah. say, oh, look at this cool project we've done and, you know, here's a, a big screen TV with something that looks cool and then you find out that it's only something that's been funded by, dare I say, Innovate UK and no one in the company is actually using it and we probably both know some of the examples that I'm, I'm talking about at the moment, but that's just crazy. But when people truly start to use technology to drive real efficiency, that'll be interesting. Imagine if there was a construction company that had a 10% EBITDA profit at the moment in the UK, that'd be incredible. But yeah. we're a long way away from that. Yeah. On your point of consolidation in the market and the, the topic of acquisitions, what type of company do you think we will see the most acquisitions from? Will it be a like a technology company or do you think it'll be maybe a like a tier two, tier three contractor that's really got their head in the game or someone else? That's a great, that's a great question. And I think the first area of consolidation will be in technology where you have platform players who acquire point solutions. Most of our customers are overwhelmed by technology vendors now and they just don't want any more tech vendors. They want to work with their existing tech vendors or a selection of tech vendors. So that sort of consolidation thing will absolutely happen in the tech space. Something which I think it'd be illegal to say to a, a, a VC fund is that I also think that sometimes having a pure tech solution is not enough and you need to provide some services with that as well yeah. and because some of our customers absolutely need support and people to help implement things and manage things. So I think that's going to happen quite a bit. And then it's going to be really interesting to see if there are some of those tier two construction companies or really big sort of subcontractors who start to look at a, a smarter approach to providing platform solutions. Um, which would be really interesting to, to see as well. Your point around the sort of the platform versus the point solution, I think is really important. And also your, your point around the need for services and consultancy revenue versus SaaS revenue is, is obviously the naughty concept within venture capital. But I think if anything, that just really demonstrates that VC is not necessarily suited to the construction market. And yes, third-party funding is welcome within the sector, but only really if you come to the sector with the right type of funding model to actually enable pure organic growth and not the yeah. zero interest rate stuff that we saw a few years yeah. ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, funding is obviously valid for construction tech businesses, but trying to say, oh, the consumer model is we want 100% year-on-year growth yeah. and you can burn as much money as you want. That doesn't work in construction. You, you want to have businesses that have solid growth and clear profitability opportunities out there and that just doesn't sit. And also you need funders to support the right business model, which may not be straight software or straight hardware. It may have the services component in it as well and and so you need intelligent money supporting 
tech companies, not silly models that don't work and, and clearly have demonstrated a, a huge number of failures over the last 18 months. Yeah. Here's a question. Do you think we will ever see the day where a technology company acquires a tier three, tier four, or even a tier two contractor? That's a great question. If that was ever an option, I'd say to the tech company who was thinking about it, why would you acquire that construction company instead of just wiping them out? A point will come where you have all the experience in the tech company to deliver a lot of the solution of building a construction project. Way more, if I think about us, we've supported, I don't know, 400 construction projects globally. There aren't many construction companies that have that number of projects and not that many people in those construction companies who have that experience. So yes, there are going to be gaps in there, but you'd almost be saying, okay, I'm a really big tech company. I want to get into construction. So I'll just hire the people I want who have the gaps that I, I see in my team. And then we'll just do that. And we have a great tech stack. I'm not saying just me as voice control. There, there are the Procores and Autodesk in this world could easily set up a, a construction management division and probably eat everyone else for breakfast because they're going to be so much more efficient because they have a consolidated sort of tech strategy. And yeah. that'd be fascinating to see happen. I'd honestly love to see it. It would be absolutely amazing. I do think that owners will start to switch on and see that there is an opportunity here. And yep. if, if you look at NHS2, HS2 very much went down the sort of the innovation program, Innovate UK-esque, challenge-based innovation type environments. And they've got good outcomes for, for it. But then it's not necessarily true organic value generation activities, in my opinion. But yeah. they create great case studies and they win lots of awards. But then if you were to take that scale of program and funding, and use it in a really clever way to uh, to bring in a like a team of sort of technology companies, bring them together, yep. gel their solution, chuck some sort of service based expertise in there. Imagine the benefits that they could have brought to an Absolutely. HSG. It'd be yep. insane. Yeah, the innovation for innovation's sake and let's win as many awards as possible is really. I, I think there's an inverse relationship between people who win lots of awards versus those companies that are truly successful. And I know that's Absolutely. a pretty blunt thing to say, but I think it's Absolutely. true. So. Absolutely. I said the other day that awards are great, great yeah. for signaling that you're focusing on the wrong metrics. Yeah. But equally, I guess that's that model that I described with HS2 as the, as the example. It's just Neom, isn't it? I, I've just described Neom, really. Maybe, But maybe there's a middle ground for organizations or clients that don't have unlimited budgets. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. But also I think some of the Middle Eastern projects have also wasted a huge amount of money in getting the sort of big four consulting firms to come in and just waste everyone's time trying to think about things that could be cool and innovative rather than just going and getting the best solutions out there in the market, which is unfortunate to, to say. We've A couple of our customers have asked us to go and validate other tech solutions and it's interesting scratching under the surface of somewhere again it doesn't matter about how much funding someone's received or what awards they've got it ultimately comes down to actual customers and revenue and business efficiency and that's 
you know, I think ultimately that's where this great reckoning will be with companies this year where some, again, regardless of how much money they've raised over the last couple of years, it's not going to matter if they don't have a real business that's underpinning yeah. what they're talking about. James, I know I'm conscious that we've run out of time really, but one last question to finish. What are you most hopeful for in the future? Oh, lo- lo- lots of things, but yeah, I think yeah, if we continue to grow this year, continue to be profitable, we're looking to probably do some acquisitions again this year and continue to hopefully be a, a leader in supply chain in this industry. I just think there's so many opportunities. It's absolutely not. Hopefully in, in four years' time when we have our next podcast, we'll be able to chat about what's happened over the last decade and, and whether BIM in the United Kingdom has actually started to provide any real sort of productivity gains or not, which will be That's hilarious. It. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Absolutely. Honestly, that four years has flown by at a scary pace. I but, know, uh, Thank you so much, mate. Likewise. Good to speak to you.